Hello, and welcome to this episode of Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely deep literary merit, with your classy and sophisticated hosts, Alexandra Rowland, Freya Mosk, and Jennifer Mace. On today's episode, we're discussing Singing My Sister Down by Margot Lanigan, The Hunger Games, and the Stargate Atlantis fanfic Freedom's Just Another Word for Nothing Left to Lose by Cynic Docek. Welcome to episode 25. How the fuck did we get to episode 25? <laughs> Sorry, what? That's not the actual title of the episode? Oh, it's called Kill Your Darlings. I'm Alex, and I'm the bodyguard in the bedroom with a sword. I'm Freya, and I'm the librarian in the hedge maze with strangling vines. <laughs> I love them. I'm Macy, and I'm the queen at the dinner party with the poisoned necklace. Of course you love strangling vines. <laughs> They're such a Macy thing. It is. We are three redheaded fantasy authors. And today we're talking about characters dying horribly in media. Those sure were some gruesome deaths we just described. <laughs> um, you know we spoil a lot of things, but a seriously, lot. so many spoilers are going to happen in this episode. <laughs> I can't even tell you what we're going to be spoiling because that in itself would be spoiling you for those books and movies. Mm -hmm. uh, so just don't <laughs> listen to this episode. <laughs> no, do just, just turn it off now. <laughs> Friends, if you are spoiler averse, this may be one to skip. However, if like the rest of us, you are messy and love spoilers, yeah, come in. Come in. Come in. So before we get to uh, ruining every piece of media containing a character death from the last 30 years of sci-fi, <laughs> fantasy, and fanfiction, what are we reading, fellow serpents? I'm in the middle of reading a book called A Useful Woman by Darcy Wilde, which appropriately enough is a murder mystery. It's a historical mystery set in the Regency, mm. and the the character, the titular character, the useful woman, is a young lady whose family was very well off, and then they fell into ruin, and so she's stuck in that sort of idle gentility but not enough money <laughs> thing where she can't actually do proper work because that would be ruining her gentility, but she also doesn't have any money, so she finds herself kind of being a social secretary for fancy high-up ladies. And it starts with a murder in the ballroom at Elmax. Question. It's fun. Is it gay? It is not gay. Oh. No. But it is, it's delightful. Like, it's got a really <laughs> light touch in terms of the world building and a very, very good awareness of the intricacies of the class system mm -hmm. at the time, including the, the Bow Street Runners, the proto-police force, and how they were drawn mostly from the working classes and had a lot more uh, racial diversity than the upper classes. Mm -hmm. It's good. I'm really enjoying it. That sounds fun. Whereas I just got a package in the post, which I was very excited about, which contained an arc of my agent sibling Claire Bartlett's book called We Rule the Night. That's the one with the really fancy cover. Yes, it's super cool. It's like phoenixy, but also like machiney. And it's about, it's um, inspired by the Night Witches, who were female Russian oh. bomber pilots in World War II. Yeah, I think. they're badass. Yeah, they're super badass. And it's a YA fantasy novel with magic in the metal. And there's two main characters who are girls, and I love them. And they, one of them was doing the Mulan, I'm going to cross-dress and be in the army thing. And the other one is a factory worker who uses forbidden magic. Nice. And I love them both, and I wish to protect them. But Question, is it gay? 
I think it might be. I'm not oh. sure yet. I feel like it might be. But I mean, it's, it's by out. one of your agent siblings, so I feel like the likelihood of lesbians is already baseline Higher. quite high. Yeah, There's like a yeah. 50-50 chance of lesbians in any given book coming from anybody under Kirsten. Like, nice. that's just a fact. Nice. Um, and, like, the another 40% of, like, queer boys. Cool. And I am hard at work on revisions. Once again, I am on deadline. I'm always on deadline. I'm, like, on deadline this whole year. Oh, no. <laughs> so I've, oh. uh, I'm continuing to pick my way slowly through Ruin of Kings by Jen mm. Lyons, which is, I, I mentioned it on the last episode, uh, it's an amazing epic fantasy book that's coming out next year from uh, Tor and it's got all sorts of like cool narrative shenanigans and footnotes and again, <laughs> we know we know how you love a footnote yeah you know how i love a footnote uh alex <laughs> loves some footnotes she um, they do bitches love footnotes <laughs> yes. um, i feel like yeah, we can so... consider every one of alex's corners in these episodes is at heart a footnote that's true that's, that's true. true alex's fun facts stuff corners is yeah <laughs> footnotes let's do a fucking episode Let's. Um, but first, I will apologize if my teeth chatter in this uh, episode. It is 34 degrees outside and my house has no heating no. and I'm so cold. <laughs> so cold. I'm so cold. Yeah, Macy is sitting there wrapped in like this fleece lined hood thing. And meanwhile, I'm like, it's 35 degrees in the other scale of temperature here today. Yeah, it's sunny. I will take mine. I will keep mine. Thank you. Oh, also, isn't this the first episode of 2019? I think it might be. I think it oh. is. Ooh, cool. Well, uh, happy new year, everyone. From the past. Yes, happy, happy new year. Year. Welcome to the future. Welcome to the Tell future. Tell us when you have the flying cars. Yes, indeed. Um, we're still in December when we're recording this, but I think this episode goes up on the 2nd of January, I want to say, mm. uh, which means that the next episode is going to be our one year anniversary, which is amazing. Uh, but... Or the episode after that, technically. The, the episode next episode. The next episode is our last episode of our first year. Cool. Our first season. Our first season, yes. Uh, cool. So what are we... We're talking about uh, character death today and, like, killing people off and murder. Yes. Yes. Who has murder. some thoughts about murder? <laughs> Hold on. Wait. Before we go any further, I have just decided... Anytime you say the word murder in this episode, you have to say it in a funny voice. Murder. Murder. Macy, can you do the proper Scottish? Murder. No, I know. I like the rolled R's. I can't. I can't do it. Do we want to consider perhaps having an episode? No, I think we should just have an episode where we say murder in funny voices. This is no longer the Serpent cast. This is now the Ministry of Funny Murders. Murder. All right, so as authors, character death is murder, even when it's not murder. No, say it. So, say it in the what? way. Say it in the right way, Freya. You have to say it in the right way. I do not. I refuse. <laughs> We've had the argument about me and funny voices. Oh. Anyway, character death. What is it good for? What do we use it for? So I have a little mini taxonomy because I'm me. Um, and I feel like a lot of the things that we use character death for in fiction can kind of be broken down to two classes, um, two kind of emotional meals that we're looking for to go back to one of our earlier theories of why people read stories, which is to have a particularly have a particular emotional journey or meal. Mm -hmm. So, I say that there are two sides to a character death. 
There is the exploration of grief and mourning and loss about that character having died for the other characters and sometimes for themselves. And then there's the terror and the mortality of fearing that you might die too because the death implies that that is what's at stake. Hmm. And I think if you're thinking about it from so a story that has a very present and either foreshadowed or explored death, I think you're absolutely mm-hmm. right. If you're using that meal metaphor, sometimes mm-hmm. a death is that you're, you're, you're eating a hamburger and suddenly you hit a pickle and you are not <laughs> expecting a pickle in this hamburger and you're, you don't not like pickles. It just wasn't on the description of the hamburger. And so you have to sort of sit there. It was not for accurately tagged for su- on the hamburger. In your surprise. <laughs> but you, it may or may not add to the overall hamburger experience, but you probably haven't decided that the first time it hits your mouth and you go, oh my God, what is this <laughs> I, uh, pickle doing? Can I just my- say that I love you? <laughs> that was such a perfect metaphor and I completely understand everything (laughs) but sometimes you do have a story where it's like clearly on the menu this is a pickle burger and you go into it (laughs) braced for pickle because you really love pickle yeah oh dear it's good when you when things are tagged accurately yeah you know whether or not you're in the mood for pickles I feel like there was some discussion about this with Rebecca Quang's uh, The Poppy War book, where it was signaled fairly clearly, hey, this is a really dark book. There's lots of like things in it. But a lot of people felt that the tone of the earlier chapters didn't signal that there would be pickles and then were distressed when there were many, many pickles. <laughs> but that's, a, that's definitely a conscious narrative choice, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. you're saying mm-hmm. this is what life can be like. It can start off mm-hmm. no pickles and then suddenly pickles ahoy. Oh, my God, we're going to overuse the <laughs> hell out of this metaphor. <laughs> well done for choosing something vaguely phallic for our metaphor today. Yeah. We're but retitling yeah. this episode, Pickles and Murder. <laughs> <laughs> Subtitle. Pickles and murder. Thank you, Macy. Thank you for playing along with my with my small shtick here. Uh, I know you, you know love I'm... me. I Freya loves us too. Freya just has some dignity that we do not. That's true. That's true. Shall we talk about our tent poles? Let's please yes, talk let's. about our tent poles. We have so many cool tent poles this week. They're so cool. We do. Oh. So our first tent pole this week is one of my personal favorite short stories. Mm-hmm. It's a story called Singing My Sister Down by Margot Lanigan, who's an Australian writer, who I think is one of the best short story writers out there. This particular story uh, was quite well acclaimed when it came out, and it's currently collected in one of her books called Black Juice, but it's also, you can find it online by itself. It's a fairly short, very simple premise Mm -hmm. for a story, and it's about a society where the punishment for certain crimes is death, and the method of execution is that you go and stand in a tar pit and very, very slowly sink. And part of the punishment is that your family has to bear the shame of your crime, but they get to go out and essentially have a picnic on the tar pits with you and sing and feed you Yeah, keep you company while you die. Comfort you while you die. And so it tells, from the point of view of a young boy whose sister has committed a crime, and it's about the day that his family goes and sings her down. So it's very simple, but it's, very affecting oh yeah super effective it's oh and like the implications of the world building that you get through the filter of this young child i i wasn't quite sure how old he was meant to be but it felt fairly young fairly young i would say probably like seven or eight because there's that line at the end about his mother picking him up and carrying him even though he's really too old and too big to be carried so he has Mm -hmm. to be like right at that age where like it's still possible to pick him up 
but he's mm. too big for it. So I would say like seven, eight, nine ish. And it's kind of interesting because I'm not entirely sure that the child at that age has a full understanding of the concept of death. And so you're having a story that's exploring a loss through a viewpoint that can't really articulate it. No, a lot of he understands his sister's feelings around it in terms of fear, mm-hmm. but everything is about the impact on him. But also, it's very much a world building story. It's about mm-hmm. what this boy understands is the impact on his family of the shame right. and the way that everyone else has gathered to watch and what the victim's family is doing. And yeah, it's a very interesting one. It's very unsettling when you realize yeah. what her crime was. Yes. As well. And the way it's sort of like quite cavalierly clearly tossed aside as, oh, well, you know, this is, yes, she shouldn't have done that, but it was something that she clearly <laughs> thought she should have done. Because it sort of basically implied that she's a domestic violence victim who eventually kills her husband. Is right. that what you guys got from? Yeah. I, I yeah. got almost that, like, she was, did she didn't choose to marry him, that she was given or, or sold to him in some way. Yeah, and she, like, took up an axe one day and killed him to get herself out of that situation. But, yeah, there's this element of hopelessness and inevitability like all the decisions have already been made before the first line of the story and so you just get to like sit there and slowly watch these consequences happen as she like sinks into the tar pit and makes a choice about how to die as well because there's a line Mm -hmm. about her mother saying like oh I, I smuggled a gun out here I can like put it down into the tar and shoot you and I'll just tell everyone that your heart stopped and Mm -hmm. she says no don't do that and you get this sense also that she chose her death even before the story starts. Right. Because her mum says, you knew this was going to happen. You chose to sink when you put your hand on that axe handle. And yeah. she says, yes, I did. And so for something that feels inevitable, there's definitely a sense that this is the death that she chose. She chose yes. to go this way by her own agency rather than by someone else's hand. Yeah. Slowly over time. And uh, the story that it brings to mind when you guys are talking again about it as a world-building story is The Ones Who Walk Away from Omalas. Mm-hmm. Because it's a similar idea to what Amal called, you know, the travelling of eyes over a... Over a sculpture, wasn't it? There we go, yes. Yeah, the, the, the travelling of eyes the over a sculpture. The journey of yeah. eyes over a sculpture. And I know that Freya, at the time, you were talking a little bit about how good artwork guides the eye. Yes, absolutely. And this is a story, it is a masterfully constructed story. Mm-hmm. It gives you a moment in time, it gives you a society that you get a very clear sense of in terms of the deep bones of this society. What do they value? Mm-hmm. How do they punish their own? What What's important? What isn't important? And exactly as you said, it's shown through the point of view of someone who's quite young, but because this is his society, everything seems normal to him. Mm-hmm. And that's something that Lanigan is very good at, creating a very odd society and then choosing a point of view that shows you its oddness in a way that seems perfectly straightforward. Mm-hmm. So what did you think about um, stories that do that kind of world building around death? Can you think of any others like that have, you know, as obviously with fantasy, we can do whatever we want. Mm-hmm about the way a society thinks about death. Are there any others you can think I'm, of that do something like this? I'm trying to remember. I feel like I read something a long time ago that had some kind of death cult in it or something. I'm trying to remember what it was, but I, it's like a whisper on the edge of my mind and I don't remember what right. it was. Honestly, the first thing that came to mind for me was Bleach. Oh yeah, interesting. I don't know, explain that one. It's an anime. I know it's an anime, I know nothing about it. So so Bleach is a shonen fight anime about Shinigami, 
Mm-hmm. And so it has... Disclaimer, I have watched approximately zero episodes of Bleach and read rather a lot of fanfic because I'm me. That counts. I have have seen probably 30 episodes of Bleach back in the day and have read no fanfic. But the conceit of Bleach is that there are these monsters that can eat the souls of the recently departed um, and the Shinigami are trying to bring those souls back to the afterlife before that can happen to them. And so it's all about afterlifes and who gets one and the violence of basically erasing you from existence mm-hmm. rather than putting you back on the cycle of rebirth. Our second tentpole kind of ties into the whole like death cult kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, for mm. sure. Should we talk about that one a little bit? Yes, let's. So as you guys might have heard me say before, I really love The Hunger Games. Um, specifically, I adore the first movie of The Hunger Games mm. and... I cry or tear up every time at the first movie, and you guys can tell me which scene does that to me. Oh, it's Rue's death. No. Oh, no, no, no. It's when she uh, when she saves her sister, when uh, Prim gets called up at the reaping, and she decides to, when Katniss volunteers. Uh-huh. You, have a, you have a weakness for sister stuff. I have a weakness for sister stuff. Also, because I think all three of us have sisters. Younger yeah. sisters, right? All of us have younger sisters. All of us have younger sisters, yeah. so, you know, feelings. So... So the idea of the Hunger Games is that this is a dystopian America where the central privileged uh, area has won against a revolution 75 years ago. And in punishment for this, every year they take one girl and one boy from every other district and put them in an arena to fight to the death. And this is televised and everybody is forced to watch it. And you are selected randomly. And the main character is very effectively shown to us through the first 10 minutes of the movie as being an accomplished hunter. Uh, She can take care of herself. She's very clearly protecting her little sister as if she was the mother. And the film takes this illustration of the world and the poverty and the hunger and the terror of all of the children waiting to see whether they're going to be selected. And then it draws the little sister's name out of the hat and you realize that the little sister is dead. Yeah. Effectively. Yeah. She's 11. She is skinny. She is tiny. She's delicate. Yeah. She will die. Yeah. She's dead. And you watch Katniss, the main character, the big sister, see this. You watch her realize that her sister is dead. And you watch her say, no, I won't stand for that. I'd rather me be dead than her. And I don't even think if it was that conscious for her, but the actress yeah. does a great job of the way that Katniss then shuts down. Because she's replaced her sister's death in her mind with her own death. Yes. More or less at that point. Exactly that. And I think that this is the thing um, Hunger Games does really well, Mm -hmm. is the terror of death, because everybody involved knows they're going to die. Like, okay, sure, one of us is going to survive, but nobody believes that it's them. And there's a moment where Katniss is about to be placed into the tunnel to be sent up into the arena to fight. And she's standing there and there's no one there to see her but the one person who's been kind to her. And she just starts shaking. It's so, like, real. Like, you can really... And it's such a powerful moment. No one's brave. They're surviving. Because bravery is is a choice and they don't have a choice in this this situation. They just have to survive. Like... They have one chance of getting out of this, and that's by killing everyone else. And that's not a fun thing to think about, and that's not 
courageous or heroic. It's just something that like they have to do to get out of this. Right. And it's especially impactful as a as a story because it's relying on that shock value of it being children and mm-hmm. young people. And that's the idea of death as social control and that right. it has more effect because it is young people. Did you ever watch Battle Royale? I was just thinking uh, this is so much in conversation with the original, the Japanese Yeah, one. absolutely. Which is very, it's a similar thing, this idea of one, on the one hand, death as entertainment, but on the other hand, death as yeah, social control via mm-hmm. punishing or killing. And there's, and there's an element of senselessness to it because they're not criminals. Right. It's saying that it is death that has no meaning when it comes to the individual. To the wider world, to the people doing the killing, these individuals do not matter, which is why the whole idea of, oh, let's introduce them, let's give them scores, let's dress them up, let's make them mm-hmm. characters, that's not mm-hmm. about them. Still, that's about making the story better for the people at home who are watching. Right. And that's very much yeah. uh, made explicit. I can sell star-crossed lovers, is what the mentor of the two children uh, says to mm. them. And it's a, there is a certain amount of message to it, because this person... You know, Suzanne Collins was writing a story where some characters were <laughs> going to die and she definitely has to build up enough uh, pathos and enough empathy and enough caring about the characters who die for those deaths to have meaning. Yeah, She's obviously mm-hmm. doing it with a lot more empathy than the capital is doing. Uh, right. But it's the same thing. It's about building a narrative where a death has an impact for one way or another. I think from a world-building perspective, this is a pure exertion yeah. of societal power these deaths yeah absolutely right this is the capital saying we can do this to you and you can't do jack shit about it what about the specific deaths that occur then so that there are obviously a lot of deaths occur in this in the right. books and in and in the movies but especially in the first movie there are a couple of deaths that stand out because of where they're placed in the movie and because of the impact they have for not only the audience but for katniss herself Yes, and I think the one that stands out the most is always Rue. Oh, yeah. When I was, okay, so I've seen this, I saw this movie several years ago and was very impressed by it and quite enjoyed it. And uh, But I watched it again last night and I felt so much more of an impact this time. Mm-hmm. And specifically at Rue's death, like I had to pause the, the movie and sort of stare off into the distance for a second and go, I'm going to die one day. <laughs> like I had never... This sounds ridiculous because you know sort of like in your head that you're going to die one day. But I like last night I just sort of had that moment of like, oh, no, wait, like I'm going to die someday. Like that's something that I'm going to have to live through. Oh, wait, it's it's death. (laughs) You don't live through that. Okay, how do I think about this? Like, how do I like approach this kind of weird, surreal thought that this is a thing that everybody has to do eventually? Wow. Uh, Yeah. Well, for me, I think, especially in the context of the last few years, Rue's death has such resonance because it's the Mm -hmm. senseless killing of a young person as their community looks on, which becomes a turning point, a striking point for uh, social revolution. Well, specifically, and from this movie, which is several years old now, it's the senseless death of a young black girl. Yeah. Yeah. And it is very much a martyrdom in a way, but she's not martyred by choice. Katniss's decision to lay flowers out around her as if it was her own sister who died has a huge ripple effect on the society. Yes, because it's this moment of absolute empathy. Like Katniss has been basically 
conditioned for through training that she's going to have to kill people and Mm -hmm. basically for her whole life like the hunger games is something that she grew up with something that has been a part of her life and she always knew that if she goes to the hunger games or if someone go someone she knows goes to the hunger games odds are they're dead or they kill everyone those are the only two options and so there is so little empathy here that that moment of taking a few minutes to lay out flowers for Rue is just so huge and impactful because no one was expecting her to to do that. And I think for me, the I, I have some opinions about the later books, and I, I don't necessarily think that they were as good or as succinct as the first one, but the echo in the very last film slash book, and I'm going to spoil all of you terribly for this now, the echo of Prim's death back to Rue's death is supremely affecting because the entire revolution was basically Katniss and the world saying, I'm not going to let Rue die again. Yeah. And Prim's death is Rue dying again. And the entire book is Katniss, the entire series happens because Katniss says, my sister won't die, I will die instead. Right, exactly that. And it turns out that obviously that's the catalyst for revolution, but at the same time, I can see the point in that. Like, it's a character death that does make a point. I think you could very much have had a very effective trilogy without it, but it is a way of saying there is always going to be senseless death. Right. Mm -hmm. This, This death did not have to happen, but it has, and that's because a lot of the deaths in this book and a lot of deaths that happen are senseless. Yeah. And I think in a way, Prim had more agency in her death than Rue ever had in hers. Well, you get more of Prim on the page. Mm, I more meant that Prim chose to work as a nurse and be in a war zone. And Rue was uh, sent to her death. I also just want, there's another death that I want to um, mention here. And it's the death that doesn't stand out. Mm -hmm. And the character of Hamish, who is their, their mentor... This this thing is never said about him, but he he was one of the the former winners of the Hunger Games, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. and in the the movie, no one ever mentions this. We can assume, based on context clues, that he is the mentor since he's the only winner from District Twelve in living memory, or, or sorry, the only currently living uh, winner from District Twelve. He's mm-hmm. the mentor for the District Twelve tributes every single year. Yep. So every single year. He has to mentor two people and know that they're going to die. Yep. And you get the sense in this movie that he looks at Katniss and Peeta and thinks, this year there's a slight chance. This year, maybe. I think we watch him get there. We watch him be dragged there, drunken and screaming by Peter. Not by Katniss, by Peter. Yes, because Peter's willing to play the game. Because Peter is trying to get Hamish to see that Katniss can win. Mm, yeah, yeah. And the other thing about Hamish is that by his very nature, he has killed a lot of people. Oh, yeah. And mm-hmm. he and I can't remind me, in the first book, or the first movie, does Katniss outright kill anybody? Yes. Who? I think she blew up, didn't she, when she was blowing up the stash? And no, she knocked the boy off of the cornucopia at the end to the... Yeah, and in the, mov- in the book or in the movie? In the movie, she did that, I think. And in the movie, she also shoots the guy who uh, throws the spirit at Prue. And the wasps. 
and the wasps. Mm, yeah, yeah, so she kills. Yeah, I, was, I couldn't quite remember. I'm pretty sure it happened. I couldn't remember the order and the methods. And that's another way that uh, character death, obviously, if you are including character death in a story, mm. a lot of the time, if it's violent death or murder, it's not just the impact on who's left behind. It's the impact on the person who did the killing. That's yeah. a huge point. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Because that changes Katniss. It does. It really does. Do we want to cover our third tentpole briefly and then move on to some of the themes? Yes, please, because I think of these, like, we have three amazing tentpoles, and I think this third one was my personal favorite. Uh, it's I love this. Oh, my God. It's, oh, I have never, oh, my God. Sorry, I just need <laughs> to have a moment. Uh, so the fanfic tentpole this week is Freedom's Just Another Word for Nothing Left to Lose by, and we none of us know how to pronounce this person's name. I pronounce it Synecdochic. And Macy and Freya say it two completely different ways. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. Uh, this is a Stargate Atlantis fanfic about uh, Rodney, and it's set after they come back from Atlantis and John died uh, during mm-hmm. one of mm-hmm. the like final battles to to save Atlantis. Mm-hmm. And John's name is never spoken through yeah. this whole fic. It's never spoken. His death is never... I don't think it's ever directly alluded to. Maybe towards the end after Rodney has done some healing. Or near the very beginning you see how it happened. No, you see the headstone only. No, no. Early on he talks about the puddle jumper exploding. I I think that might be before we know that that was John. It is before we know that it's John. Yeah, you see like flashes of it. Sort of like like a, a flashback or hints that are dropped here and there but Rodney since it's it's from Rodney's perspective you never hear Rodney think directly of the thing like he's clearly avoiding it in his mind he has blocked it off he's built a wall around it because it's this huge well of grief and he has to move on somehow this fic is so gorgeous and so delicate and so exquisitely fragile (laughs) and yet it's made of steel And one of the things that is so amazing about this fic is that it's a perfect example of a thing that fanfic can do that profic would not be able to do. Mm. Absolutely. This could not not have been a profic because it relies Mm -mm. so heavily on what the readers bring to the table with their knowledge of context. You can't do a story where you don't mention a person's name and show the vastness that is this black hole that is their absence. Yes. And the effect yes. on a single person without a strong knowledge of who that person was and why their absence is like that. Absolutely. It has to be a fanfic. And I think that the other thing that's so masterful in this fic is that it lays out this relationship between John and Rodney that isn't actually in canon. Yes. Like not, it not only takes him and kills him, but it gives you this deeper um intimacy between the pair of them and shows you what it means and what it costs and how heavy it was and there was a point i think later on where rodney is being hit on by a colleague and he refers to himself as a widower yes he says he was widowed yes Mm -hmm. and i'm like oh okay that's how deep it was yeah other than that one small scene it's all done in negative space like you show the absence of someone by the gap that they leave behind. Mm-hmm. I remember reading this when it was first written, and I think I read it and thought, well, that was incredible. I am never reading that again in my life, and <laughs> firmly closed the window. Uh, but when I was reading it, it still felt intensely familiar, because I think the first mm. time I read it, it just imprinted itself somewhere on me as a, an example of what you can do. 
with a story. And I think that this is one that we may want to revisit later because there's a whole other side to it around the power and the ethics of power that I don't think this episode is going to dig into all that deeply, but oh, I love this fix so much. This was one of, I think, like the first three fix that I put on our list when we started this podcast that I'm like, we have to do an episode around this one. And Freya yeah. was like, oh, you're going to make me reread that, are you? <laughs> and Alex is like, oh dear. <laughs> I was like, oh, I've never read this. La, la, la. <laughs> when I was talking earlier about the impact of a death in fiction, thinking about the mm-hmm. placement of it in a story. So obviously we're thinking about the Hunger Games, Rue's death, we know the importance of it. Prim's death comes near the end when we know, again, all of the context and the, and the mm-hmm. build-up. And we know these characters, so we care about them. This is a story that takes place entirely in the aftermath of a death. But because it is fan fiction, technically, it is a death that occurs mid-story. Mm-hmm. It's just that the entire first section of the story where all of the empathy for the character and the relationships are built up is canon. Right. And so... You can have stories that are about grief, and a lot of stories are about grief, but in original fiction, the negative space has to be handled with a lot more, I don't think delicacy is the word, but I think it has to be shaped a lot more forcibly because you have no knowledge of this person. You only right. have a sense of the grief, and they are much, so it's much more about how, is, how do you tell a reader the impact of someone's loss when you did not know them. I mean, I think that you that you're right. It has to be. It's the opposite of delicate. Fic can be way more delicate. Mm-hmm. I think that like the amount of fic that I read and like how it can be so delicate and say so much by saying so little mm-hmm. is part of what's getting me in trouble with my editor so often and leading <laughs> to her leaving so many comments on in the margins of my work. Like, can oh, you please big. explain this? Because I'm used to never having to explain anything. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's an interesting thing to have to unlearn, but I think that I absolutely got that from fanfic, that <laughs> sort of like assumption that the reader is carrying all the necessary information with them already, and all you have to do is sort of imply a connection. Yeah. I just had a thought. Um, we talked a long while back about fairy tales and how we can use fairy tales as a common language, a common background, but that it's cultural. Mm-hmm. I think that fanfic in a with a canon behind it is the equivalent of that that is cross-cultural. Yeah. I think that's super cool. That is cool. Like it's it's an assumed context and there's its own mythos within it. Yes. Yes. And part sure. of that mythos, I think part of the mythos for me as to why this fic is so effective and makes you sit up and pay attention, this is Rodney frigging McKay. Oh, yeah. And he's like, I have seen probably like two episodes of Stargate Atlantis. And even I know that he is like famously kind of not about emotions. He is a jackass. Yeah. And yet, like, you empathize with him so strongly and you like, you feel it so viscerally. And it's not that he's not a jackass in this fic. It's just that, and also. Yeah. It's like it it gives you a a reason for him to be a jackass that is a lot better than any of the reasons he actually (laughs) has in canon. Like, it shows you, you can tell to the people he's interacting with, this is a very abrasive, you know, difficult to be around person, just as the character Mm -hmm. is in canon. But you get a sense that you're seeing him in a kind of drawing back. Like, almost like there was a palindrome of he started here, he became a much more tolerable human being. And now, in the aftermath of this loss, he's kind of drawn back on behind his defenses. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he has to, like, learn to let them down once more and to, like, love people again and how important teaching is. And I, I think that this 
gives us actually another thing that a character death does to those left behind, which is it's a pivot point for the character. Like, it changes you. Oh, yeah. It changes the people left behind. And this fic is all about Rodney figuring out that metamorphosis. Who is he now that he's lost John? God, this is such a good fic. I honestly, like, if someone had never read fic before and I could only give them one fic to show them this is what fic can do, I think it would be this one. But they'd have to have some knowledge of Stargate Atlantis, I think. They they would. They would. But that can yeah. be easily done. I'd be like, watch two episodes of Stargate Atlantis and then go back and read this fic. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. But I wanted to read this one little quote, if I'm allowed. May I? Oh, please do. Please do. It's so because good. Because it's, it's so good. It's two years after they went to Atlantis, civilians who went off-world regularly started wearing dog tags. Just in case. Rodney hasn't taken his off in years, except during the tests for his debriefing physical. He feels more naked, without them fully clothed, than he would if he was wearing nothing but. He wears the standard two-tag set. No one gets close enough to notice that one of them is printed with a different name. God damn it. <sighs> Just that That's so good. tells you everything. It about just tells you on a basic level. It's very good writing. Oh, anyway. Welcome to fantastic. our tent poles, friends. You should consume all three of them this weekend. We are not kidding. You really They're should. They're amazing, and none of them will take you that long. No, like Macy was very, very <laughs> restrained, I thought, in choosing these tent poles. <laughs> uh, so, Macy, I think you wanted to talk a little bit about crisis response and so forth? Yeah. Um. So there's a whole thread running through Freedom that's about... Rodney accidentally teaching his ducklings how to be good at handling the types of crises that he saw on Atlantis. The everybody's going to die, you've all been poisoned with a bio-contaminant, figure it out right now. Mm -hmm. And teaching them their reaction to that. And it was super interesting because since the last time I read this fic, I've become a professional crisis response engineer essentially. And watching the ducklings learn reminded me of watching my co-workers learn these skills. Mm. And it's very strange because I don't have to worry about like dying of Ebola, but I do have to worry about, you know, Google search is hard down and people around the world cannot find their way to the emergency room right now, you know? Yeah, it's still like big and potentially life impactful. And it has the same adrenaline response and the exact same failure cases, um, the exact same challenge with paralysis and the same sorting of which human beings can do this and which human beings are damaged trying to do this. And Freya, I was wondering if this is something that you see in doctors as well, the types of doctors who would be dealing with crises, that they have to learn this skill set. Essentially, yes. Obviously, there's a wide variation in the way that people can deal with crises and some people are better at decision-making under pressure than mm -hmm. others. Most of it is when you're learning emergency response, and it's probably the same, I'm sure it's the same, you know, in you know military training and things like that, is just about drilling uh, acronyms and ways of responding into people over and over and over again until it is something that will come to the forefront of your mind and that you can do almost automatically, right. even if the rest of you is panicking. And even just the simple sort of CPR training that a lot of people will do, that sort of Dr. ABC, 
danger, response, airway, breathing, circulation. Like you do it over and over again. You have to keep up your training in it as a doctor as well. Mm-hmm. But it's designed to be so simple and repeated so often that even if you are in a crisis situation, you know, if you walk down the street and somebody suddenly collapses, that even though most of you is full of adrenaline and going, oh my God, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Part of you just kicks in. And it's the same with uh, any kind of like trauma response. That's how they mm-hmm. train emergency doctors. To a given set of inputs, you have a given output and you right. just work through it step by step. Right. And that's how you, that's how you get past the adrenaline. <laughs> There's a great nonfiction book that I highly recommend called Deep Survival that is an examination of several like disaster scenarios, people getting lost in the mountains or in a kayaking incident or like completely like if you fail now you will die and how people responded and who lives and who dies Uh, and bringing it back to stories and killing characters in fiction. I think we as authors like to break our characters, like to push them to that edge, that adrenaline response. And one of the ways that we do it is by killing the red shirts, right? Yeah. And it's a sign that, you know, stakes are real. Yeah, I think it was it, it's super interesting to do that. And I was having this thought when I was reading Freedom about how interesting it would be to be in a class like that because you find out so much of who you are in crisis situations like that. Like when you are on the edge and there's a choice between doing something or disaster, you really find out what you're made of. Mm-hmm. And getting to do that to characters um, is especially fascinating because you get to like push them and figure out what they're made of too. Yeah, well, that's, that's why I think one, there's this very common piece of writing advice that is find, work out what your character is most afraid of or most doesn't yes. want and then do that to them because <laughs> that is how you find out who they are. And, and character death, or the, so the death of, threatened death of themselves or the death of someone else is often the worst thing, but not mm. always. And I think it's, it's not something that should be entered into as a writer lightly, because there could be something else that you could do to this person or that you could threaten other people with that would actually be worse for them in particular. Yes. And that thread through freedom of Rodney sort of semi-accidentally teaching his ducklings how to survive and what kinds of people they are and what they will respond to well and what they won't is in a sense very similar to the whole of the Hunger Games being Rue's death will not happen again because what he is trying to do is not bring John back but say this can't happen again and it takes him about two-thirds of the story to work out that that's what he's doing Mm -hmm. that he is attempting to somehow make amends but also frantically reach forward into the future and stop the things that happened to him and that happened to john from happening again he couldn't save his john but he might be able to save the next one and i think that i was reading uh there's an essay about freedom online that notes that this story on its surface is about processing the loss of john but if you dig a little deeper, it's also about Rodney processing the guilt of killing Atlantis. Yes. But also the, and the guilt of being complicit in what the Stargate program turned into. Right. Well, he kind of refuses to, right? He says, I would rather nobody ever got the possible benefits of this thing. Than yeah. And his reaction this. is just to, to run in the other direction and to put very firm roadblocks in the path of any of the people that he's teaching being able to be used in the same way that he was used. And, and you can see, again, by negative space and one tiny line, the sorts of possibilities that have happened in history 
uh, like the Manhattan Project, Mm -hmm. where we accomplished something huge and amazing and immediately turned around and used it for an absolute abomination. And this is the um, thing that is nowhere stated in the fic, but if you know the show, you know that at one point Rodney destroyed a star system. Oh god, really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, shit. God, this fic is so good. There are layers and layers. That's that's very much the trolley problem on a big scale. (laughs) Yeah. Right? Yeah. But I think we also wanted to talk a little bit about different narrative tropes and different cultures' narrative tropes around death. And I think, Freya, you had some thoughts about one of our favorite sea dramas that we love this to is tease this part Alex where we with. talk about nirvana and fire again isn't it <laughs> yes. yes yes it, it is, is. <laughs> <laughs> so nirvana and fire you go into it i don't think you can escape going into it knowing that it's a tragedy because that right. is everyone who has told you to see it has said bring tissues you will dehydrate <laughs> yourself that sort of thing so you, you're, you're forewarned it doesn't mean that the deaths in it don't have emotional impact because they absolutely right. do but you do go into it knowing that it's going to have a an ending that involves death and that is tragic on one level but also for the kind of narrative that it is is almost the inevitable best ending this just makes me like shake my fist at china <laughs> i was i can't remember who i was having the discussion with about you know oh my goodness it just goes on and on they put in all this effort and you care so much about the characters and then, and then he dies, and the idea that for a Chinese romance, especially, and when they're talking about romance, more in that sort of like historical sweeping epic mm. sense sure. as well. That the building's is, romance. Yeah, that is considered, that is the best ending. You know, it's more to do with the, you know, what, what meaning did your life hold? And, you know, can, can, you, can your feelings survive, you know, go on even past death? But death is considered one of the better endings for a story it is that is the way that the beat has to happen Mm. i think that a lot of tv shows in particular do some really good and some really bad work with character deaths just because they're long running um like i know that one that i really love killjoys kills significant characters generally about at once a season towards like episode nine or ten of a ten episode run they will murder someone that you really would really rather they hadn't spooks did that a lot (laughs) Mm. i think supernatural has killed off a lot of people pretty periodically right what they don't tend to they they tend to make me angry yeah that's an example of like them doing it poorly i mean whereas like um in Killjoys, for example, there's a... Spoilers for Killjoys. There's a great female Doctor character who, throughout the course of, I want to say, season two, kind of falls down this hole of revenge and, like, gets killed towards the end of that season, but you can see how she made bad decisions and brought it on herself and, like, lost her way. And it was... I won't exactly say deserved, but, like... You can see narratively that she earned it and it was about her own actions, not about mm. other people's. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's, that's definitely a, the kind of death that you can sit back and say, yes, I appreciate the way that that was built up towards. Unlike something like Grey's Anatomy, which just kills its characters as a way of ensuring turnover of hot people, okay. apparently. Yep. Everybody in that surgical department must need so much counselling. That's not that's not wrong. But Black Sails also, I think. Spoilers for Black Sails. Spoilers for Black Sails. It kills quite a lot of major characters or at least very prominent secondary characters but they earn it i feel 
Sometimes they do. Sometimes I think they, they walk a really good balance between ones whose death you can kind of see coming, both because mm. of their actions, but also because of the impact it's going to have on everyone else around them. And then occasionally you can be really blindsided. And I want to talk a bit about the sort of the idea of surprise death versus inevitable death, because Black Sails does both of them very well. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's certainly uh, Charles Vane for example, mm-hmm. is one of the ones that's sort of an inevitable death and you can yes. see it coming and you, you think maybe he'll get out of it, but it's something you have a bit of time to prepare for, but the impact it has on the characters is still really good. Whereas uh, Mrs. Barlow's death. That was so, so the death of good. Is incredibly unexpected. Oh. It's sudden. It is shocking. And yes. the ripple effect it has for the main character is huge. But the effect on the, on the audience is immediate as well because oh, yeah. it's not it was no never um she was a character that you fairly thought was fairly safe you she know? was also fairly sensible she was sensible um she was sort of out of the way of the main action mm-hmm. for a lot of it she wasn't in these big battles and she wasn't being you know abducted and tried for hanging and things like that but she dies and the effect that it has on but flint is specifically like she she insults a powerful man standing in the powerful man's room and says, you know, if it was up to me, like, it's shouting at him, but clearly is unarmed, has no weapons, like, has no way to make any real threat to him. She's just shouting at him, and a bodyguard pulls out a gun and shoots her in the forehead. Bang. Jesus. Yeah. She is dead on the floor. Like, there's, a- like, absolutely no way it could be anything else. It's not like, oh, she's been shot in the side. Could she survive if we get her to a doctor? It's just incredibly sudden, incredibly brutal. Gone. And, yeah, I'm trying to think. If I had to think about sort of the impact, there are some deaths that because of how sudden they are, they have a great impact. What about deaths that are very clearly signposted? So there's one of my favorite books that I read last year, which I'm going to be very vague about because I feel like it's one that, when it gets published, people should oh. read it as unspoiled yep. as possible. Uh, yeah, if it's but... not published yet, you don't, you are not allowed to spoil it. No, yeah, it's not published don't name yet. It. I'm not going to name it, but there is. It ends with a character death, and this character's death is signposted very explicitly on the page. I'm dying. You know, this person's going to die quite early, and the you still have a little bit of hope with the way that the story goes out that it might somehow be averted. But by the time you get to the end, you realize that it couldn't have been averted, and that's part of what makes the story so powerful. But you, by that time, you care so much about them, and you care so much about everyone around them that I, I, I finished the book and I cried for about 15 minutes, and then I sent a very sad <laughs> slash angry email to my friend, the author, yeah. uh, t- telling her in no uncertain terms exactly what I thought <laughs> of that particular ending. With, you know, it's, it's, it's a masterful book. It was beautifully written, beautifully structured. It couldn't have been done any other way. But part of the power of it was that you are told on the page very early, this person is going to die. And then you spend the entire book being like, please, 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 let it be a trick. Let it be a trick. Please, please, please. <laughs> And I think that um, Nirvana in Fire very clearly tells you, like, this sickly, spindly mastermind, he's constantly on the verge of, of keeling over from protagonist syndrome. Um, yeah. He he has he has the vapors. He has you know whatever the fuck the Chinese version of, of fainting tuberculosis is. Um, I think and- part of the problem with the Vampire is that because it's like this sort of nebulously like poison poison magic illness. You're like, is there a magic antidote? Like fandom has decided 
that the only correct thing to do is get him pregnant with Jingyan's baby. Oh and my then god. he will be fine. No, no, there is a very legitimate yin yang. Oh, it's um, because like of the yang energy. That's right. Uh, yeah, right. Okay. For this. <laughs> It's because of the yang energy. That's why he needs to have a lot of gay sex. I get it. Yes, he's he's missing in the masculine God. energy. That's the problem. He has too little masculine energy. And so if Jingyan just fucks him real good. Listeners, you can't see right now, but I am rubbing my temples with my fingers in exasperation here. It is a perfect application of magical healing cock syndrome, I feel <laughs> like. It- it's, it's, it's there is nothing wrong. By canon. There is nothing wrong with magical healing cock. I will stand by magical healing cock <laughs> till the day I die. I'm not going to stand next to it because it seems messy. But like, okay. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, things don't always do well or do honorably by their character deaths. Mm. And I wanted to talk a little bit before we get to the end of the episode about the concept of fridging. Yes. Oh, yes, this is very important. So who wants to define fridging for our listeners? Can I please do it? Can, okay. I have gotten... Okay, so <laughs> I, I used to be in this one fandom, oh, and every now and then some people would come and be like, yeah, fridging, and I'd be like, let's talk about what fridging actually is because you're using it in the wrong way. <laughs> fridging is when a female character dies a violent death in order to advance the emotional journey of the male main character. Mm -hmm. All of those things have to be true for it to be fridging. If she dies of sickness, then it's like a shitty death, but it's not technically fridging. Because fridging comes from the trope, I think it's from from, comics, uh, comics of a superhero's girlfriend being found found dead in a refrigerator. Yep. Yep. Having been murdered. More than once, I want to say. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It it was like a whole trope. It was a thing that used to happen all the time. Uh, And so, for example, like if the the male main character has a mother who died tragically of tuberculosis when he was 11, like that's lazy storytelling, but it's not technically fridging. Well, I mean, language use does change. And I think fridging has gained a slightly wider meaning than that. That is absolutely where it comes from. Mm. Uh, And I was listening to the Writing Excuses podcast Mm-hmm. Uh, which has sort of very short episodes about the various aspects of writing craft. And their most recent one was actually about character death and when and how and why should you kill oh. characters. And they had this discussion about what is the difference between, you know, uh, an impactful death that has an impact on your main character mm-hmm. and fridging. And they were discussing it more in terms of how well defined that other character is. And also, do they have an arc that is their own, that is separate from their mm-hmm. relationship to the main character? And I think they didn't mention the gender thing at all, which I think you have to sort of acknowledge that it comes from a context of a pattern in comics, especially, but in media more widely of this being female characters being killed to advance the emotions of male characters. But it is being used a little bit more widely as a death that is careless or poorly built up or is just very shallow because this person exists to die. They don't exist to have their own arc at all. I think that I will state this outright, flat out. You cannot fridge a straight, white, able-bodied man. I'm willing to stand by that. Fridging is about power differentials in narrative. Like, mm. I, I will put it wider than, than women, but I, I, I do kind of a little bit object to using it for absolutely everyone. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think that for me, one of my like formative examples of fridging is Tara's death in Buffy. Oh, yes. 
famous one. Which isn't about emotional journey of a man. It's about an emotional journey of a woman. But it's about murdering a lesbian. Just cause. Mm. Just cause, right. Just to have a sad. Because we need to have a sad here. So we'll kill this character. And there were a bunch of other like shitty things about the story arc. And about Willow in that story arc. Particularly Tara and then the death in the 100. What was that? Lexa? It wasn't Lexa who died. It was... No, it was Lexa. Was it Lexa? Yeah. I think it's about that awareness of broader context. You know, yes, killing exactly, killing yes. one lesbian character to motivate her you know, surviving girlfriend to turn evil is, you know, it's a choice that's been made. But when it is made in the context of the history of killing off queer characters and especially queer women, then mm. it becomes a trope that we can put a name on and talk about as maybe something that should be avoided in future. This really did a number on my own writing. Will- Willow and Tara? No, um, the right. idea of who you're allowed to kill. Oh, absolutely, yes. Same, but I want to hear what you have to say about it. So I made a decision in about 2015, 2016, that I was going to write queer women. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm going to write. And for a long while there, I thought that that meant that I couldn't kill any of my characters because they were all queer women and you should mm-hmm. never kill a queer woman. Right. <laughs> Right? And I'm like, the combinatorics here are really terrifying to me. Because sometimes Macy just wants to to write about death. Sometimes I just really need to murder someone's girlfriend. Okay, I'm sorry. I really wanted to do a thing with, like, possessed zombie river spirits. Yeah. And so I, I finished a short story this summer where I just went, fuck it. I have to write this. It's eating me from the inside. And I... It's part of a context of me writing stories and books about queer women that queer women do not die in every Macy story Mm -hmm. but I have to come to terms with the fact that nobody reading it will have that continuity and that context they'll just be reading a story in which a lesbian dies and so it's kind of a struggle that I have with myself about am I willing to have that be a thing that I put out into the world and I've decided that yes but I need to be conscious of it. I yeah, want to hear you guys yeah. talk more about the ways in which you kill characters. I have recently just killed a fairly major character for the first time and discovered why authors kill characters because, <laughs> God, that was a fucking amazing drug. I wrote that scene in like one sitting and I was like shaking with like the most delicious kind of adrenaline afterwards. I was like, <laughs> I've never felt so alive. It was great. So I killed my main character's girlfriend in a short story that I wrote a little while back but I killed her before the story starts and neither Mm. of you have read this story because this is one of my horror stories and I don't think I've managed to coax you into reading cannibalism quite yet Yes, but for me the satisfying part was the main character's realisation that the corpse that she has found in the river is her girlfriend Oh, <laughs> because no. this is a character who has a minor god of death who will t- occasionally tell her about dead bodies in the river so that she can go and eat them. Mm. And she has does been she, told... Wait, wait, wait. Does she eat her girlfriend before she figures out that it's her no. girlfriend? Oh, shit. Okay. No, she does not because I would not be quite that mean. But mm. um, she has been told that there is a suicide corpse in the river and she should go find it. And so she does. And she finds this body. And she's hungry and she's in that context. And she rolls it over and she recognizes the necklace. (gasps) And then she realizes what it means. And that was way too much fun. 
Yeah. Yeah. Like, just like writing really strong emotions, I think, is just like so fun because you get to use such emotional language and and like get so deeply vivid about people feeling really strong things. Hmm. Yes. How yes. about you, Freya? Have you murdered anyone? Don't yeah. say it, say it right. Say it right, Macy. No, hold on. Don't answer that question. I, I, I Macy said says murdered. I said murdered. Okay, I'll let it slide. Minorly Welsh. There we go. Yeah, yeah. Have you exhumed? Have I exhumed any of my characters? No major ones, and I don't know if I will. I'm not. I'm thinking about it. I'm not always never going to never say never in terms of things that I will and won't do to characters. I certainly like injuring my characters a lot. <laughs> yes, Ooh, yes. You, you like to murder. You like to injure them so that they can then have sex. Well, not so much so that they can then. It just often turns out that <laughs> just after happens a scene that in after which someone has been in mortal danger and sustained some injuries, they're often feeling like some life-affirming frantic makeouts. <laughs> like, that's just the way yeah. it works. Break your leg, get horny. The Freya mask story. The Freya mask story. Well, the book that I just finished has three on the page, Death. Yes! In, like, the first fucking prologue. Yeah, the prologue. You is, monster. Is somebody dies uh, and their death sort of sets off the, the chain of events that so good that happen in the story there's somebody else whose body is discovered and then there is someone who dies on page in a way that i won't spoil but yeah. the point of it was that they all of their deaths obviously serve purposes or they do know mm. you know a bit about all of those characters but they're not major characters right. and they're not ones that i expect the audience to have become very attached to sure. yet I think for me, it's, again, it's that idea that there are other things you can do to characters. And yes. I'd be much more oh, yes. interested in exploring the effect of having killed, like being the person yes. to do the killing. Interesting. And, and it's just for the characters that I've written so far, what they fear most is usually not around death and loss. Like, it's usually a, another fear that I am exploring. Mm-hmm. And it's to do mm-hmm. with letting people down or being truly seen. It's because, I guess, because I'm coming from a romance structuring sense. Right you know there's going to be that happy ever after. No romance novel is going to kill one of the leads. That's just not going to happen. Unless it's Chinese. <laughs> yes, unless it is. Um, so yes, no classical Western uh, romance novel is going to suddenly end up on the last page with one of them dying. If they do that, then it's, uh, I guess, women's lit, or, which is a, <laughs> a, it's a, a word, I, I guess, a, a genre I have a few tra- problems with the naming of. <laughs> But yeah. basically, it can no longer be called a romance novel at that point right. just because of the tropes. And yeah, I just, I like exploring different fears and different ways of eliciting strong emotion. Right. But I am absolutely sure I will end up killing someone to advance someone's emotional narrative at some point in the future. I just haven't decided how and, and why and who. Yeah. Yes, a good bit of murder. And speaking of a good bit of murder, this episode is running pretty long, so I'm gonna do a murder. Take an axe to it! Take an axe to it! Die, 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 die! everybody. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely, extremely deep literary merit. Freya will, one day, do a silly voice for us. Possibly when she's on her deathbed. Anyway, it's great to celebrate surviving 2018 by talking about characters who don't survive at all, but we have some even more exciting topics to talk about on upcoming episodes. On our next episode, two weeks hence, on January 16th, the last episode of our first year, we're talking about witches. 
And oh man, listeners, we have some really great things to tell you about. That episode includes a moment which has been hailed by critics as, and I quote, the most Alex thing that has ever been said on this podcast. Honestly, it's an honor just to be nominated. Anyway, if you want to prepare in advance for that episode, one of the tentpoles is I Shall Wear Midnight by Terry Pratchett, which is one of the Tiffany Aching books. Tell your friends about it. In the meantime, feel free to continue the conversation with us. Questions, comments, breathless adulations? Contact us at serpentcast at gmail.com, at serpentcast on Twitter and Tumblr, or join in the conversation in our fan Discord chat, linked on the About the Show page of our website. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to review us on iTunes, yell about us in public on Twitter, or with a megaphone from rooftops, or hire a skywriter to scrawl our names across the heavens. And by the way, that whole look you've got going today, you're killing it.